welcome to your North Carolina Court of Appeals. I'm Judge Chris Dillon. I'll be presiding today. To my right is Judge Murphy. To my left is Judge Jeff Carpenter. I'd like to thank our, our clerk today, uh, Eddie Sanders, for being here, and, and Richard Rimlar is our court marshal. We have, I understand, two cases that are being consolidated, so let us know how y'all are going to do the, the arguments, I guess, when, when, you, when you approach. But uh, the cases, cases are TH versus SHL Health 2 and DD versus SHL Health 2, Inc. And so if we're ready to hear from the appellants, let, let us know how you intend to do the arguments, or I guess you're biased, but how much time do you want to reserve for argument? Mr. Chief Judge, uh, may it please the court, my name is Brian Boyd. I'm reserving five minutes of time for rebuttal. Your Honor, this case is an uh, important reminder who these plaintiffs are in this case. It's often forgot in this context. We're talking about two plaintiffs, DD and TH. They use their names by virtue of the fact that they are both victims and survivors of sexual assault. DD, on March 5th, 2020, uh, had a massage therapist uh, digitally uh, penetrate her vagina while she was exposed uh, alone in a massage therapy uh, session. On December 8th, 2018, TH uh, had her massage therapist grope her breasts and press his erect penis into the back of her, her head while making lewd comments. I, I give you that context just to let you know what the principal issue is, is whether these victims and survivors of sexual assault should be barred from having their day in court on the merits of their case when the prior plaintiff's attorney made a minor procedural misstep, one that the grand equitable power and relief under Rule 60 is both intended to correct and to protect your honors. Uh, on this issue, the court should recognize what this court has called a grand reservoir of equitable power available under Rule 60 and authorized under this court's decision in Carter versus Clowers and hold that the trial court, in this case Judge Levinson, erred in denying Rule 60 relief in this matter. Now, your honors, such a holding is appropriate for three principal reasons. First, the trial court's conclusions of law are simply not supported by the evidence under Rule 60B1. Two, the trial court's findings of fact are not supported by the evidence and signal, if you will, an arbitrary decision that the trial court in turn abused its discretion. And three, your honors, the trial court's denial of Rule 60 relief results in a substantial miscarriage of justice. And I'm focusing then on really the Rule 60B6 portion of that. Now, as I go into this, Your Honors, I want to talk about what the trial... Before you get in into your main argument, I want to ask it, just kind of procedural question, just to make sure I'm, I'm on board and, and understanding everything. Have these plaintiffs actually been denied um, their day in court in the other case? Has that case been dismissed? Is that in our record? Or is this just an assumption of what is likely to happen? In those cases. Great question, Your Honor. It, what I will tell you is, it, and I'll back up and say that this case really results from six other individuals, or six total individuals, four of which have been granted Rule 60 relief at the trial court level, both uh, Judge Crosswhite in Iredell County, um, Judge, uh, Judge Croom in Wake County, two cases, and Judge Wilson in Onslow County. The two cases here, DD and TH out of Mecklenburg County, have not lost their day in court, but we know, Your Honors, if this court decides that the trial court got it right, the next thing the defendants are going to do is file a motion to dismiss the case under race judica grounds. And quite frankly, if I was defendants, I would do the same. So I think that's what I'm alluding to, Your Honor, that that's their day in court. Well, and maybe this will come in when we get to, to the B6 
part of the argument but until that actually happens is the sixty six motion right under your your argument since that hasn't actually happened yet i think it is your honor and i'll say this i view rule sixty six and i think the case law supports that i rule that you rule sixty six as a catch all provision if and when rule sixty b one is not a political and defendants i anticipate will come up here and make that argument say that i can't argue sixty basics because they'll say that but the rule is you see the cases they'll say that that the facts are supporting the case law sites that you can't argue sixty basics if the facts supporting it are more appropriate under one through five well the defendants are going to get up here right now they're going to tell you my case doesn't fit under sixty b one so if that's the case where are we we are in a sixty basics i am making this akin to if you will under the hearsay rule under the hearsay rule you want to fit within a well delineated exception in the hearsay rule and the catch all provision is there if it cannot fit within the others i think this court would interpret that similar so i'm making sort of a corollary response to that but i, I guess let me maybe clarify the question a little bit how until your clients other cases actually dismissed how can you actually w properly weigh the equities for 60 b6 not knowing if that case is going to be dismissed or not. I think I would make an argument on judicial economy in that situation, Your Honor, because what I think will happen, I'll, I'll play this out for us, they're going to rule race judicata grounds, and then I'll be making a 60B6 argument before the same trial court in Mecklenburg County on appeal to this court as well. So I do think it's ripe to consider it in the alternative. And this court has many times ruled on alternative grounds, has many times argued, we understand what the appellants have argued, but we think this is more appropriate than this, which is kind of what the Carter case did as well. So I do think we are in a situation where this court, quite frankly, we don't have to get to Rule 60, uh, 60B6 because I do think the evidence supports a 60B1 conclusion that the trial court, quite frankly, missed. But at the same time, I do think to save judicial economy, let's go ahead and rule based upon the facts, based upon what we have, because the trial court did consider 60B6 too. So in that sense, the trial court has properly considered it, has ruled, and, and if you remember the language of the trial court's order basically said equity will not support unclean hands here with the, with the plaintiffs in this case. So I think that case in that issue is properly before this court as well as 60B1. In our record, do we have the defendant's answer to the new complaint in the other case? I think we do, Your Honor. I, I think we do, and I, I, I have to go and look at that myself to say that. And I'm does it include the affirmative defense of res judicata? in that answer? I don't recall that it does, Your Honor. I really don't recall that. I'll, I'll let defense counsel correct me if I'm wrong on that issue, but I don't recall that it does, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Boyd. I didn't mean to get you so far off track. No, you're perfectly fine. I want to start where I think they're going to start, Your Honors. They're going to stand up here today and they're going to argue, this court is bound by the Supreme Court's decision in Briley versus Faribault. I want to take their best case and tell you why that's not appropriate. And here's what I want you to look at. This court is not a court of soundbite. This court is not one to take just fancy words that a court may say, throw it in there and make conclusion. This is an error-correcting court. This is a court that has the opportunity to read carefully what Briley versus Faribault actually held. And again, I anticipate defendants will get up here and say, we can't in this case reward a plaintiff who was asleep at the wheel is what the argument they're going to make. But let me give you four reasons why I think Briley versus Faribault is in opposite and inappropriate for this court to consider under these facts. First, you have to consider, and your honors know this, you have to consider the procedural posture of that case versus where we are today. 
And to be clear, where are we today? We filed a complaint, and we are now just fighting on getting that complaint at the next stage, which would be a motion to dismiss or discovery or anything like that. We're just getting this case off the ground, Your Honor. In Briley, what did we have? The procedural posture was it was a summary judgment. It was a summary judgment in a medical malpractice action where there had been discovery, and the plaintiff in that case failed to timely file her designation of expert witnesses. Now, why is that important? It's an error by the plaintiffs, clearly. Why is that different from this case? Here's the critical thing. The basis of the error is under Rule 26F under the Rules of Civil Procedure. And I would be remiss to say that I've got my civil procedure professor over my, over my shoulder here, Tom Anderson, probably Judge Carpenter's civil procedure professor as well. I say that to say, if I get anything right with civil procedure, it's on him, anything wrong, on me. But I say that to say this, under Rule 26F, there is a mechanism by statute, by legislative authority, to say when you fail to meet these deadlines, the rule says under 26F, shall, shall be dismissed. We don't have such provision under Rule 41. There's not a shall to say, oh, if you file a voluntary dismissal with prejudice, it shall be dismissed. That's not what we have here. So that is significant. We have here under the 26F, that's the situation. Here, the legislature in Briley made clear that there were sanctions, and that's exactly what the court followed in the sanctions. In fact, what the court further said in Briley versus Faribault was they said, what they're really trying to do, the plaintiffs, is they didn't even file a, 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 a notice of appeal on the summary judgment. They're basically trying to bootstrap, if you will, this Rule 60B motion into a, we want a second look at the summary judgment. And the court said, you can't do that, you goofed. Rule 26F is designed to do that. Here we don't have competing rules, Your Honor. And I would argue a Rule 41 and a Rule 26F, Rule 26F should control. And that's why Briley should control with respect to that. But, Your Honors, we're not in a 26F posture. And I, I, I challenge the defendants to get up here and tell you otherwise. Briley versus Faribault has really good language, good sound bites, but it doesn't fit the law. It doesn't fit the facts of our case. Now, what does fit the law and facts of our case? This court's decision in Carter versus Clowers. That court had essentially an identical posture procedurally. Case has been filed. We have complaints filed. And in that situation, what do we have? A plaintiff who had two defendants, voluntarily dismissed with prejudice against both, and says, oh my gosh, I only meant to dismiss the one. As you know that Judge Arnold of this court decided uh, because the posture was a Rule 15 amended complaint, and Judge, Judge Arnold said, well, that doesn't really fit. That's not appropriate in this case. Instead, viewed it under a Rule 60B challenge and said, that is appropriate in this situation, and ruled that there was, under 60B1, either excuse, mistake, or, uh, or mistake, excuse, excusable neglect, or uh, th that comes into play there. That case most closely fits what we're talking about Let here. Let me ask you some questions. Let's say you and I got in a car wreck, and there's two venues that are proper, Wake and Durham. I see you in Wake, we go for a little while, and I'm like, you know what, I'd rather be in Durham. And so I file it, dis I'm just, this is just, just basic question. If I file it with prejudice, and then I file a lawsuit in Durham, would you have a defense? You, you, you dismissed it with prejudice, you're out of luck. I, don't, I think you're correct, Your Honor, and I'll tell you why this case is different. So, look, I understand that. So in this case, I have to take what the judge says is true, and the judge found that plaintiff's attorney, in this case, um, intended, not like the other case where, he, where, the, where the lawyer 
intended only to put one name in there and mistakenly put both defendants in there, intended to, to dismiss these cases with prejudice, maybe didn't, not understanding what the import of that was, thinking I'm doing this, I just, that just means it just dismisses it, and like in our case, Wake County, I can still bring it in Durham, which would be incorrect, it's a mistake of law. So that, that's what the, the court found. So doesn't that make this case different, that it was a mistake of law, which there's, there's a lot of case laws, mistakes of law just aren't grounds for Rule 60B motion. Well, I think, I think it's, I would argue that it's not what the decision to dismiss the case with prejudice was not a mistake of law. Uh, I would argue that it fits properly within the 60B1 conclusion. To your point, Your Honor, I, I would take exception that you have to be bound by what the trial judge did with respect to this one thing. On the standard review here, under Rule 60B1, whether the conduct constitutes mistake, inadvertent surprise, or excuse me, neglect, is a conclusion of law, fully reviewable on appeal by this court. So I think this court can freshen anew, look at the facts, look at the law, and say, did the plaintiffs in this case, did, was their conduct amounting to mistake, inadvertent surprise, and excusable neglect? So I think you are not necessarily bound. You're only bound, Your Honor, when and if the conclusion is, okay, there has been some excuse, uh, excuse or neglect, then did the trial court abuse its discretion? Our car wreck, our car wreck. So then I go to Durham County, and I'm like, oh my gosh, the law is that since I've, I've, I've dismissed with prejudice, I'm out of luck. I go back to Wake County and ask for a Rule 60B, and I intended to file it with prejudice. I just didn't understand the legal import of that. I did, that was my bad. Does it, I mean, is a trial court bound to grant Rule 60B motion, or does it, does it even fit? Because it is a, that, is that, first of all, have I made a mistake of law? by dismissing it in Wake County, thinking that, I, that it wouldn't prevent me from filing in Durham. D did I just commit a, a mistake of law that Rule 60B doesn't fit under? I wouldn't necessarily argue you've made a mistake of law because that goes to intent of the parties, which I do want to address specifically. You're hitting, to me, a major point. Under your fact scenario, under your hypothetical, you're saying that I filed in Durham, for example, just, or if I recall if it's Wake or Durham, but you dismissed the one and then you said, oh gosh, I shouldn't have done that situation. I shouldn't have done it with prejudice because I did it thinking that's what I'm supposed to do so I can go file in Durham. Yeah. But with prejudice, has nothing to, do, nothing to do with venue. It has to do with the claim. And so if I file with prejudice, it's race judicata if I go to Durham. I didn't know that as a lawyer filing in the, the dismissal. I didn't understand the legal import. But I intended to do with prejudice. I intended to file that thing. I just didn't understand the legal import. Yeah. Am I entitled, does Rule 60B cover that circumstance? Because it's, because first of all, has, isn't that a mistake of law? Not, not, is that a mistake of law? And is that not what Rule 60B is supposed to cover? Because there's case law that says, you, if you just don't understand the legal import of what you're doing, you make a mistake of law, that Rule 60B doesn't apply, as I understand it. Okay, yeah, let me, let me kind of take that. I, I think that case, I, I agree with you to the extent that I don't know that Rule 60B relief is appropriate in that situation, but that's not our case, and let me explain why. Why is it not? Because this case, the court found that, that the attorney thought that I, I'm supposed to do this so I can go to the other thing and didn't realize the legal import was it just bars all the claims. Well, I think this court needs to look at what happened prior to that, oh, I didn't realize the legal import, at least what the trial court concluded, which I believe is error. If you recall, based on the, the procedural history of this case, the plaintiffs filed their original complaint as a, uh, the all six plaintiffs, if you will, in Mecklenburg County. Judge Casey Visor severed those complaints with instruction to refile those complaints in the original jurisdiction, Mecklenburg County, which would then be sent out to the various counties. So what our particular plaintiffs did in this case is they filed their new complaint, if you will, the DD 
separate complaint, the TH separate complaint. They filed it in Mecklenburg County, but they filed it as a new action under a new case number, which was in opposite to what Judge Visor wanted. He wanted it under the original 20 CVS 5678, which was then be transferred out. So what they did is they filed what I'll call an improperly filed complaint in Mecklenburg County. Now remember, that's still the original jurisdiction of these particular plaintiffs as well, not just the place of where the cases were all put together, but that's where these plaintiffs resided. And then what they realized, and I believe it was defense counsel that told them, says, hey, wait a minute, you need to file this under the original 20 CVS 5678. Prior plaintiffs counsel then did that. So now we have two complaints, both in Mecklenburg County, one improperly filed under a new case number, I won't say the case number to confuse us, and then one that's properly done in, com in concordance with Judge Visor's rule. So now you've got two separate complaints out here, and what then did the, defendant, the plaintiffs do? Contacted the defendants and said, hey, we realize we've got two complaints, we realize that we need to actually have this 5678 Mecklenburg, and we're going to dismiss that one. So what I want to talk about is intent here. Clearly the parties did not intend to dismiss their case altogether when they've already filed now two complaints, both in Mecklenburg County, and now they're simply trying to dismiss the one that shouldn't be going forward. Now that's significant from the example you've got, because in your example, your honors, there is no active case at all. You've dismissed the one in Wake County and then you up and say, I'm going to Durham. But that's not what we've got here. And that's where I think the Rule 60B1 does come into play, and we do have to look at mistake, inadvertence, or excusable neglect under those facts. So, and, and let me talk about what I think is important here. Because, Your Honor, if your conclusion is correct, that a to dismiss a case with prejudice is a mistake of law, then Carter shouldn't exist in this court's jurisprudence. Because that's exactly what happened in Carter. The plaintiffs dismissed their case against both defendants with prejudice. There was no case existing in Carter, yet this court said, guess what? Mistake, excusable neglect. So I, I think to take that position also eviscerates Rule 60 altogether. Well, I need to go back and read Carter, because I thought you said what happened was the attorney didn't intend to include both names. So it was a mistake to put that name in there. They, the, the intent was just to simply dismiss with prejudice one of the defendants. Here, the court found there was an intent to dismiss this case against all. They, well, they just didn't understand the legal import of doing that. Well, and I think what I would say is, we do, we're kind of batting around where we need to go is, what did Judge Levinson actually find? What did he not find? What I think is error in this case. At the outset, let me say this. He made an error of law first, which is revealed by this court de novo. And that is the failure to consider Carter versus Clowers at all, and to simply accept the language of this court's decision in Couch, which I'm happy to address as well, that's an error of law. He failed to even address that. What also did Judge Levinson fail to do? He failed to consider on the factual basis the evidence in this case. Let me explain why. We're getting to the question of intent. And that's the question that Chief Judge Dillon has addressed, and I think it's the most significant issue in this case. What did the parties intend? And I've tried to explain this uh, through the process, but the act of intent versus the mental state of intent are different things. The best example I can give you this is the context of criminal law. Criminal law, you can make an intentional act, brain tells body to pull the trigger, but that's not the issue about true intent. Yes, my body pulled the trigger, but the question that this court has to consider in a criminal case, of course, is what was my mental state at the time of it? What was I thinking? That's what we talk about, the difference between intention of the parties versus intent, an intentional action. Did the parties intentionally file a dismissal with prejudice? Yes. 
The, the record shows that. But did they intend, was it their intention to dismiss it? And I think the answer is no. Judge Levinson, what he considered versus what he didn't consider. And you can look at the George's order. First, he didn't even consider the email exchanges between counsel, which is closer in time to what's actually going on. If we're trying to get intent of the parties, let's get closer in time to that. What, what, I, I guess I, I was, had took pause with that when I, I read it in your brief on not considering it, let me get there, it's in the order. Um, because all those were included as exhibits with the motion, correct? That is correct, Your Honor. And I'm looking at R-419. In, in the opening of Judge Levinson's order, it says, court having considered the motion, the submissions, and argument. So what's to suggest he didn't, from looking at just the, the plain language of the order, he considered everything there with your motion. Now, even though he doesn't go on to either give it um, any weight to his decision, I, I think, is, sure. is a different question. But I don't think we can say that he didn't consider those things when in the order it says he considered the motion. I think that's fair. Let's talk about what he didn't consider. And we know that from the order. He considered an affidavit prepared by Mr. Pierce on the other side, an affidavit that was created 16 months after the alleged phone call that took place between at that time, uh, ProHoc VCA counsel and Mr. Pierce. He accepted that as true. He then took the affidavit created in the same time parent of Mr. Stu Ryan, that ProHoc VCA counsel, and says, I'm throwing it out altogether. And, what's not, and then he also took what, what was supposed to be a statement by Chance Farr, then plaintiff's attorney, North Carolina plaintiff's attorney at that time, who makes a similar claim that Mr. Ryan made. So he takes plaintiff's witness one, tossing it out, not credible. Plaintiff's witness two, chance bar, tossing it out, not taking credible. But here's the thing that he did that went beyond the pale. Judge Levinson then considered the statement of Liz Benham, a very good lawyer in North Carolina, a statement that was in a trial transcript in front of another judge in another proceeding, not properly or not even in front of Judge Levinson at that time. He put on elevation Liz Benham's conversation, that she recalled that this was the way the statement went, and threw out the other side. Now, there's something about that. If we're going to go to abuse of discretion, we have to consider what was not considered and what was arbitrary. And that appears to me to be arbitrary. What also did we not consider? I think the other ideas we have to look at here is to simply say that couch creates that situation, again, is inequitable. The other thing that I have a problem with Judge Levinson's argument is he dismisses Carter out of hand at oral argument. What does he say? He take, Now remember, I know Judge Levinson was a member of this bench, and, uh, and, and so I know him very well. Uh, but he's not an appellate court judge, Your Honors. And he tossed out the Carter decision out of hand. That's this court's job is to take its own opinions. So he took the Carter decision and he made statements like, well, that's Judge Arnold. Uh, of course, was the statement he made. Then he went on to say, well, Judge Carter basically took, or Judge Arnold took a round peg in a square hole situation, but said, I didn't even know that it applied in this situation. But I guess it's good law since the other side hasn't argued otherwise. There's a fundamental problem here that I think this court needs to look at and address. And, and what I simply ask this court to do is, this case stands not just for today, not just for DD and TH, but this case also stands for the future application of Rule 60. Because let me paint for you the picture, and I, and, I, and I ask the defendants to present the situation for us when Rule 60 would actually apply in any situation. 
Because what we're being told, if you take the plaintiff's or defendant's argument, and if we take Briley just by the sound bite, then there's never a situation where a plaintiff can make a quote-unquote mistake or excusable neglect, and this court will recognize it. It essentially eliminates Rule 60 from consideration altogether. That cannot be what the legislature intended, and that cannot be what this court intended when it looked at the Carter decision. Your Honors, if there are any further questions, what I'll do is I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. Uh, may it please the court. Uh, my name is Granger Pierce uh, from Vanoy, Rollins, Adams, and Pierce. I represent three of the appellees in this case, SHL Health 2, SHL Health 4, and Torsten Shermer. With me are John Boutwell and Ronnie Crisco, who represent other appellees in the case. The way we were planning on structuring this would, I'm going to speak, um, I was planning on speaking about the applicable standard of review and the findings of fact, and then um, I'll sit down and Mr. Batwell and Mr. Crisco would address other issues in the case if that pleases the court. I was, I was going to start off, um, Your Honors, discussing the procedural posture of this case because it's fairly uncommon, but I, I wanted to cut to the chase, I think, based on what we've heard, to discuss what I think is the most important issue in this case um, because this case really is, I think, about the fundamental importance of a trial court's discretion. Uh, Judge Levinson carefully considered all the evidence in this case. He actually, and I want to take issue with one thing and address right off the bat, he actually did consider Stuart Ryan's affidavit. I wanted to mention that now so I don't forget it later. He did consider the affidavit. He didn't reject that out of hand. He simply made a credibility credibility determination that I'll get to shortly and said he rejected as untrue certain statements within that affidavit that contradicted what he found as fact. So the judge carefully considered uh, the evidence and he made findings of fact. And the standard, applicable standard of review for those findings of fact is well stated in the case law, I'm sure your honors are already well familiar with it, that those findings of fact are binding on appeal if there's competent evidence to support them, even if there's other evidence to the contrary, if there's other evidence the other side would prefer or likes better, those are still the findings of fact of the court. And one thing that plaintiff's counsel, uh, the appellant's counsel has said in their brief and has said in oral argument is that the findings of fact aren't supported by competent evidence. But unless that's something that, that is going to be addressed on rebuttal, we haven't heard and still haven't heard any example of how those findings of fact, which are numerous and very detailed, um, are not supported by competent evidence. And one of those findings is that, as, um, as uh, Your Honor previously mentioned, one of those findings is that this was a deliberate decision and an intentional act uh, to, uh, to uh, file a voluntary dismissal with prejudice. Let me just, I just want to clarify something that's kind of just floating around the back, back of my mind with this one as I've gone through it is there's a lot of focus on Mr. Hall in his intent, or not Mr. Hall, Mr. Ryan and his intent. Um, why under the findings of fact here, 
is Mr. Ryan's intent relevant when he is not the one that was ever admitted as an attorney in this case, and he was not the one that actually signed and or, from what I see in the record, filed the, um, the dismissal? That's a very good question, Your Honor. Mr. Ryan and his law firm in Pennsylvania uh, were very much involved in this case, and regardless of the fact, and, and actually it came to light at the hearing uh, on this matter that Mr. Ryan was not admitted pro hoc. Uh, Judge Levinson questioned Mr. Ryan, and he admitted at that time he was not admitted uh, pro hoc. Um, and Judge Levinson uh, took issue with that. It's, it's in the transcript. But Mr. Ryan was involved and was counsel of record uh, until the time that Judge Levinson ultimately found that he made material misrepresentations to the court, and he ultimately withdrew from all the North Carolina cases. Uh, Mr. Was he ever counsel of record in? Yes, Your Honor. Okay, he would, signed the complaint, or he, is it? He was counsel of record in the underlying right. complaint filed in Mecklenburg County. He was admitted pro hoc vice um, until he withdrew, and his law firm is still involved. So, but in he, this case, was he ever a counsel of record? Uh, no, Your Honor, he wasn't. He, I think his name was on the complaint. Um, I believe his name, his name is on the complaint. I don't think they formally had him admitted, admitted pro hoc vice, and he provided an explanation to Judge Levinson about the fact that, about why he wasn't uh, at the hearing, and at that point, Judge Levinson told him, I'm not going to hear any or any legal arguments from you, but I'll hear factual arguments from you. So he was, and he was also counsel of record um, in that underlying case for the. For but the I, I guess what in the findings of fact tie Hall's intent to counsel of record's intent? Uh, I think in the findings of fact, Judge Levinson points out that he and counsel of record, who is a, a, the second local counsel, the counsel prior to. Um, uh, current counsel, uh, he and Mr. Uh, Farr, his name was Chance Farr, were working together on drafting this. The affidavit of Mr. Ryan and the, the proffered affidavit of Mr. Farr both said we worked back and forth uh, sending the documents back and forth to ultimately have those, to ultimately have those signed. Um, the court's findings here that are are supported by competent evidence. Um, the judge really grouped those, I think, into two buckets. The first bucket were was what he saw based on representations of plaintiff's counsel at the hearing, uh, and what was in the documents that were presented to the court by plaintiff's counsel. Um, he noted in his findings of fact that, as I mentioned, there were two attorneys from different offices, both of whom were looking at this. Um, the voluntary dismissal with prejudice, used the words with prejudice, on the documents themselves multiple times. The word with prejudice was underlined. There was an enclosure letter sent to the clerk that said, please file this voluntary dismissal with prejudice. And both of those attorneys had reviewed the document before it was filed. So that's one bucket. But the other bucket, which is I think really the critical bucket here, is um, the bucket that involved the underlying evidence of intent, which is really unique to these two cases because of the procedural posture and the fact that we were essentially the last case, the last two cases um, where these Rule 60 motions were heard. And that involved and was a little bit of a strange situation for me because it involved a fact affidavit 
that I submitted to the court that recounted a conversation that I had with Mr. Ryan on December the 15th of 2021. And, and as I put in my affidavit during that call, Mr. Ryan said to me on the phone uh, that the plaintiffs, that he had no choice but to file the voluntary dismissals with prejudice. And he actually explained the reasoning to me at the time. He said, well, if we didn't file it with prejudice, the defendants could have just moved to dismiss the previously filed lawsuit. And I responded to him at the time, I don't agree with that reasoning. But that was the conversation that we had, and I put that in an affidavit. Mr. Ryan submitted this contrary affidavit denying wholesale any such discussion. And he went further than that. And what he said in the affidavit was Mr. Pierce had made that representation in Iredell County previously, which I had, and no other, and he specifically put this in his affidavit, no other defense attorney, no other attorney at that hearing said anything like that. We actually had, Your Honor, Your Honors, a copy of the transcript from that hearing, and I referenced during the hearing with Judge Levinson that we had that transcript um, where another defense attorney said the same thing and said local counsel, Chance Farr, said the same thing to her. So Judge Levinson sent an email to us requesting that we provide a copy of that transcript. Plaintiff's counsel didn't object, and we provided that to Judge Levinson. Judge Levinson reviewed that, and he essentially made a credibility determination and said, I don't, I choose to believe the affidavit of Mr. Pierce, and he found that Mr. Ryan made material untruthful statements in an attempt to obtain relief under Rule 60. And so based on that, he made the ultimate finding that this was done intentionally as the consequence of, of a volitional deliberate decision. Now, one thing he also asked during that hearing, and it's reflected in the transcript of the hearing, um, he actually, and Judge Dillon, you previously referenced an oh my gosh moment. Judge Levinson asked about the same thing during the hearing. It's reflected in the transcript. He asked plaintiff's counsel, he asked, what evidence do you have that this was done as a result of a mistake? Because so far there have been conclusory statements, there was a mistake, there have been advertence, there was excusable neglect. Where's the evidence of that? And he asked specifically on page 45 of the transcript, do you have an email string that's, that says, oh my gosh, we filed this in, incorrectly. We, we meant to file it, we meant to file it without prejudice. And the answer to that was no. He also asked, do you have any kind of an audit trail on transcript page 46? And the answer to that was no. And so Judge Levinson affirmatively asked about these things, and, and I think the record is clear. He did consider um, these issues. He did consider Stuart Ryan's affidavit. He did not reject it, the affidavit out of hand. He simply rejected assertions in the affidavit that he found to be untrue and he is entitled to make that credibility determination. So ultimately, those findings of fact that were made amply support Judge Levinson's conclusions of law that the voluntary dismissal wasn't filed as a result of mistake, inadvertence, or excusable neglect, and that's amply, I think, and, and well stated in the Couch case as to why, and um, your honors have already, have already noted those points, so I, I won't go I won't go back over those. Um, but if a lawyer makes a mistake at law, is it still something they could seek relief under 60B6? 
that something could seek relief? I'm not sure under the circumstances um, if that's something that they could seek relief under Rule 60B6 or not. Like Levinson concluded this was a mistake of law, therefore 60B1 does not apply. And that's a matter, he says a matter of law. We review that de novo if he's that's, right about that. That's, that's correct, Your Honor. I'm sure I understand the standard review. So that's a question of law. So we got, I mean, it's a question of fact, what was, what was done and the judge made their findings, but if the, if the, if the findings support that this was a mistake of law, and it's a question of law whether 60B1 applies, does that, does that meant not to cover mistakes of law? I, but, then, but can mistakes of law be corrected under 60B6 generally? I don't know that they could be correct under 60B6 um, uh, generally. If, if you get to a standout, it's possible, I suppose, someone could make an argument that at some point theoretically could fall under Rule 60B6. Under, in this case, though, Judge Levinson considered 60B6 and said, it, number one, and I'll let co-counsel speak to some of this, but 60B6 doesn't apply because the plaintiff has put this in the shoehorn or a shoehorn of this into a 60B1 situation. He also said, though, he did consider 60B6 and balanced the equities and said, here, uh, I don't think that that's Rule 60B6 would, would I'm in my discretion, I'm not going to grant relief under 60B6. So then we go back to the abuse of discretion standard um, and, and look at it there. And we balanced the equities, he said, because the lawyer didn't have clean hands because the lawyer lied. Or, or did, wasn't truthful about what happened to the other here? Essentially, yes, Your Honor. Okay. Not, not that there would be any prejudice to allow the, the complaint to go forward otherwise. Because I mean, I, I don't, because I don't see, is there any, can you point to anything where, where the defendant has been prejudiced by this dismissal with prejudice? I mean, if, if, we, if, if the relief is granted, how would the defendant have been prejudiced by this mistake of law? Uh, we, we, we can, Your Honor, um, point to, from a prejudicial standpoint, and I think Judge Levinson noted this um, uh, in here. It, well, he talked about that the defendants in the case were entitled to a court process that doesn't reward conduct such as that. So that was talking about the unclean hands issue. Um, the Faribault case, though, does speak to that um, and essentially s talks about prejudice being uh, continued expense and uncertainty of, of litigation. Isn't there also a preference for a disposition on the merits of the case? The answer, if, the answer is yes. Yes, I mean, yes, ultimately, <laughs> if, if Rule 60 applies, yes. But if 60 v. 6 could apply, is our review still abuse of discretion? I mean, I, I might think you weren't prejudiced um, because, but, I mean, it's a, is that, is that, is it a, do we review that for, Abuse of discretion. It's it's an abuse of discretion. Six six. So we have to determine yes, whether or not. Yes, sir. Judge Levinson was so outside, whatever. That, okay. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. May it please the court. I'm John Boutwell, and I represent uh, Mr. Oxendine in this case before you. Um, your Honor, I want to pick up on, uh, first of all, some of how this case got off track from the very beginning because I do think it's helpful. One of the issues I want to talk to is the, how we reconcile the cases of Carter and Couch. Um, you didn't mention Carter in your brief. The, you're, you're doing that on the fly here. You didn't, you didn't touch it in your brief, I don't think. I had thought that... Uh, we, we, we did. I know the plaintiffs argued Cal, or Carter. I know it was talked about uh, at the hearing, 
uh, and that Judge Levinson considered it. Um, and so I do, uh, if I can, Your Honor, respond to what the plaintiff said about sure. Carter and why he thinks it's important. But, Your Honor, he starts off with uh, the, uh, the, who the plaintiffs are. And yes, there are allegations of sexual abuse, and they've been defended vigorously by these defendants. Um, these defendants have had to incur considerable time and expense since 2020, Your Honors, uh, to defend this case. This has been going on for three years, and it's been rife with mistakes uh, uh, by, unfortunately, plaintiff's counsel, primarily out of Philadelphia, the Pennsylvania area. Um, and it started off where they brought all these people together, all these plaintiffs, that didn't have anything to do with all these individual defendants in one lawsuit. We had to go through uh, a lengthy hearing with Judge Beiser about how to fix the problem. Then, Your Honors, uh, plaintiff's counsel did not comply with Judge Beiser's uh, order. They filed a new lawsuit late. Um, then they filed this dismissal with prejudice. Um, then, Your Honor, they have this Philadelphia attorney who's acting in a case uh, on documents and he's not been admitted to practice in this particular case. And then the one thing that plaintiffs brought up in their brief uh, is this uh, proffered affidavit of Mr. Farr, who was the second local counsel. They didn't have it notarized. This was a WebEx hearing. If they thought that Mr. Farr's information was pertinent, have him appear by WebEx. He's just right across the border in South Carolina at the time. And so it is one repeated mistake after mistake. And defendants have been defending against this for over three years. Now, the other thing that we want to point out, Your Honor, is in plaintiff's brief, they act like somehow Judge Levinson, who I think acknowledged was on this bench, um, didn't properly consider things. I think the evidence shows and the transcript shows, Your Honor, that he went above and beyond to look at what was in front of him. Uh, as Mr. Granger said, he, I think, put his finger on the pulse, and he says, if you contend there's a mistake or, you know, what you intended to do, what's the evidence of that? And there was no evidence given. Um, and so, in addition to all the facts that he considered, he also considered Carter. Plaintiff's brief acts like he somehow downplayed would you, Carter. Would you concede, though, when they filed a dismissal with prejudice, they did not intend to, like, lose their day in court in the other case? Was that, that, I mean, why would a plaintiff's attorney dismiss with prejudice and say, okay, we're done? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the why. I know what the, uh, Mr. Do you Pierce conceive of any strategic benefit in doing it with prejudice? <laughs> I cannot. I can't either. So, I, I cannot. Not to them anyway. Right, right. Um, so, so it comes down to, you're just arguing it's a question of law and it just doesn't follow 6v1. That's what it comes down to and too bad, so sad is what it comes down to. Well, and I, th I think, uh, and Judge Carpenter's question is, I mean, do, do we want to see people have their day in court? And absolutely. Um, but you have cases like Couch where mistakes are made, um, alleged mistakes or deliberate actions are made and the court's not going to reward that either. And so that's what we have in this case. And if you look at Carter and Couch, you both have cases that involved alleged mistakes. That's what they were basically saying. You both have cases that dismissals were taken pretty far down the road in the process. I believe in the Carter case, Your Honor, um, it was done uh, over a year after the lawsuit was filed. But I don't see how your, your, your clients were prejudiced because there were two lawsuits going on at the same time. So you're defending both of them and all they're doing is getting rid of this one. 
So if they put without prejudice or with prejudice, you would, I mean, if it was without prejudice, you'd still have this case that it wasn't like there was any surprise that they were going to keep going after this one. It was just they screwed up and put with prejudice. So I don't see the prejudice besides the fact you've got to defend a lawsuit, which you would have had to do anyway, by that action. But it still may be that Rule 60B1 doesn't apply because, I mean, I'm, that's, I'm, that's correct. And, and my reading, Your Honor, of the cases is that if there is neglect, so if Judge Levinson have found neglect, he then has to look at whether it's excusable. And if he then, one of the factors under excusable is prejudice. Here he concluded, based on the evidence in front of him, that it was not neglect, that it was intentional, that it was a deliberate act. They just didn't understand the legal import of what they were doing. Or whatever rationale they gave, that's correct. And so here, Your Honor, you've got... But could he have considered under 60B6 and given relief? 60B1 does not apply to legal mistakes, is what you're saying. But could 60B6 apply? Well, according to the cases that we cited in the brief, um, when you have a case that arguably is in the sphere of 60B1, it cannot also be in the sphere of 60B6. This one is not under the sphere of 60B1. You said legal mistakes are not 60B1, so that's out. My lawsuit and that, that car wreck we talked about, right. if I screwed up in Wake County, could the trial court judge in Wake County say, you know, you screwed up, it doesn't fall under 60B1, but nobody's really prejudiced because it's, it's a week after the lawsuit, maybe that's when I filed it. I'm going to grant you relief under 60B6 because the defendant hadn't been prejudiced thereby. Could the court do that? Could they... Could they grant me relief? Well, it is a... It's discretionary. It's discretionary, right? I understand right? that. I'm not, right, I'm, right, not, right. I'm not asking to concede yeah, the whole yeah. thing. I'm just saying, could the court do that? Potentially under the right set of facts, I guess. Okay, so why was this not an abuse? So it sounds like you're arguing 60B1 is out because it's, it's a matter of law. This does not fall under that. But under 60B6, it's a matter of discretion. I don't see how the defendant was prejudiced by it because there was a lawsuit already going on that they knew about. That's all it did was just kind of made him stop having to fight on two fronts. It sounds like the only reason was because the plaintiff lied or something, you know, and, and which may be enough. I don't know. It's an abuse of discretion. Right. right. Why, tell me why it was an abuse of discretion to not grant this under Rule 66. That was the one reason I saw. Is that the only real thing? In, I, I th and it may be enough. I'm not saying it's enough or not. But Right. Right. I think here you've got a... a a cumulative set of things that are going on and you've got intention you've got intentional act you've got misrepresentation and you've got um, basically unclean hands as found by judge Levinson and I think what his order said is that even if rule 60 b6 applied well the intentional act that doesn't really bother me because it wasn't like they did this intentional act to deceive the defendants because they told the defendants we're doing this because we think we have to because we want to pursue this other one so there was no surprise that the, the, I mean, it wasn't like that there was any ambush going on because they were up front with it. They just made a legal mistake. They screwed up, but um, it sounds like that's what you're arguing. So I don't know if that's really so strong. So does it really just come down to the judge finding that the lawyer lied and, and, and that's enough that they didn't have clean hands, and so that's, that's enough to survive abuse of discretion? I don't think that's the only reason Judge Levinson denied him under Rule 60 b uh, You know, I think he took everything as a whole. So it, what other the way reason, I read so what it. Other, legitimate reasons. I don't say it was an intentional act because I don't think it, they, they did it to, to deceive. I mean, they were very upfront. We're going to go after this other lawsuit. So what else was there that would justify his exercise of discretion under 66 the way he did? Well, and, and when I say intentional act, I don't, I'm not saying it was an intentional act to deceive by filing it, but I think it was an intentional act to do something. And I think that is properly considered 
under Rule 60B6 together with the equity or unclean hands of what the attorney is representing okay. and he's not admitted. Um, and in addition to, you've got his, his judgment call. Like, is this a proper thing that we want to reward this type of behavior? And so you can, and, and, and I'll, I'll, you're saying that even though the, the, the plaintiffs themselves didn't do anything bad, they didn't act badly, because their lawyer had lied, that's enough to, to grant, to deny equitable relief to the plaintiffs. I, th I think, well, you look at, if you look at the Couch case, Your Honors, um, where there was deliberate conduct and the trial court, I mean, the Court of Appeals reversed the trial court and said, this is enough. When you have, I know Mr. Um, Boyd talked about the Briley case, um, when the Supreme Court of North Carolina talked about attorney's conduct and what they're going to do with that. And so not every act that it can be by the party it can be by the attorney. Right. Okay. That's right. I mean. Right. And one of the things, Your Honor, that I think sometimes we get lost, at least I do sometimes, when we argue about the so-called legal theories of this, here's what I would ask that Your Honors look at before, unless there's any other questions, I'll turn this over um, uh, to Mr. Crisco. When you look at what they did, Your Honors, uh, and it's in record 306, the form itself, this is not an AOC form where you just checked a box and, oh my gosh, we checked the wrong one. Uh, in the caption is all caps, notice of voluntary dismissal with prejudice. In the body, they included a sentence that says this dismissal is underlined with prejudice. And it's the affidavits of both Mr. Stewart and Mr. Granger show um, Judge Levinson took that part of Mr. Stewart's affidavit, and what happened was, according to them, local counsel sent up the form, this document or something like it. Mr. Stewart then reviewed it, made changes to the caption, right? That's mistake number one, local counsel. Mistake number two, Philadelphia attorney. Sends it back to uh, local counsel. Mistake number three, they sign off on it. And then, Your Honors, if you... Uh, if you go over to, and it's in the record of, I always have to put my glasses back on, it's 498 and 499, they sent it to the clerk. And in the clerk, they put a cover letter, notice of voluntary dismissal with prejudice, repeated deliberate acts. And that's of sufficient evidence of what to back up judges' findings. If there's any other questions, I'd like to turn this over to Mr. Crisco. Thank you, Your Honors. Good morning, Your Honors. Uh, I'm Ronnie Crisco. I represent one of the individual defendants in the DD case, Raheem Speed. Um, I do want to point out uh, uh, right off the top, and this goes back to something I think uh, Judge Murphy, you asked about uh, his response. So he has uh, at all times vigorously uh, proclaimed his innocence. There was an answer filed. It did not bring up any res judicata issue. It was actually filed in this case months before these erroneously filed actions were, were even uh, commenced. Uh, so that it hasn't gotten to that, but there are the Rule 12b-6 um, motions pending, so that's where that stands. Um, with respect to, let me let me do the sort of latter part of the argument first, and that's the 60b-6, because there's been a lot of questions about that, and I do want to respond further, uh, add a little to what's been said about that. Um, I, I will, to your question, Judge Dillon, I'll concede, I don't think the plaintiff intended for that to be the end of the case. I, I don't think that's what they intended, but that's what the result was. 
And, and I would argue that to the extent they need relief, they're going to have to look to the agents who were not acting appropriately with due diligence to handle their cases. And that's not the responsibility of the defendants. Now, with respect to your point about whether a mistake of law could be addressed under 60B6, it's, it's an interesting question. I think the answer to that, and this is, uh, I'm not trying to oversimplify, but as I think you mentioned earlier, we have a lot of case law that talks about mistakes of law not being grounds for relief under 60B1. If they were grounds under 60B6, I think that would have been mentioned by now in one of them. And I don't think it applies for, for a couple of different reasons. I think it would have to be combined with other extraordinary circumstances. I think the standard, uh, ultimately, when we're talking about that abuse of discretion, <coughs> is whether or not we can find that the judges, in this case Judge Levinson's decision to deny the relief, I think you have to find that it couldn't have been based on a reasoned decision based on the findings of fact and conclusions of law that he found. Uh, and ultimately, well, I don't think you can do that. Let me ask about that and, and the, the abuse of discretion standard and how it applies here. If Judge Levinson expressed that he didn't see anything under 60B, that would trigger 60B6, mm -hmm. then any decision he's making about the equities is of no effect because he's weighing zero on one end versus every other equity. So if he's improperly putting zero on one side of the scale, how, how would we give that any discretion if we feel that at least there was a ground to consider 60B6? Wouldn't it at least need to be remanded at that stage for reweighing? I, I think you'd be, I, I get what you're saying is that if he's looking at it and say, I see no law that would allow you to consider this under 60B6, a mistake of law can't go under there. Um, and I guess I would say in that event, if that's considered an error of law, then you have to talk about remand. I'm not denying that. My, the issue is there's no law that supports that proposition, is my point. And so I don't think he was misapplying the law in that sense. He's not saying, and, and also I, I don't think you get to the equities. I think the reason you don't see a lot of discussion of equities in there is because 60B1 is what was, was argued throughout the hearing. And you don't get to any equitable arguments about that unless you get to the point of finding there was neglect and then you're weighing whether or not it was excusable. Well, he concluded in the alternative, I don't think it applies, but, it, but if, even if it does, I weigh the equities and he, he, he did say that it. as well. He does conclude in the alternative. And, and I agree with that. And I would argue that even if you get into that, um, when we talk about the prejudice to our parties, that's not the only consideration. I think an analogy that would be appropriate because I mentioned excusable neglect. Uh, if you look at, in the Couch case, they talk about sort of the four-factor test that if there's neglect, was it excusable? And it's more than just whether there's any potential prejudice to us. I think those factors would also weigh heavily if you're making a decision about whether or not it was an abuse of discretion if you analyze it under 60B6. It talks about um, there is the danger of prejudice to us, but then there's also the length of any delay caused by the neglect and the effect on the proceedings. And when you look at the procedural history, including the underlying action, the fact this was going back to 2020, that is extremely prejudicial. The reason for the neglect, which is there was no good reason for it, I apologize, but that's the extent of the, more than a dozen findings about that uh, in the case. So I apologize, it looks like I'm now in the red by a considerable margin. Thank you, Mr. Rogers. May it please the court. Briefly, Your Honor, I want to speak to the couch case. I intentionally left that one and allowed defendants to argue that one first. Again, sound bites sound great in a brief, but when you read the case, couch is not applicable. And let me explain why. Couch is of this court, of the Court of Appeals, but I want you to note something that both the trial court order and defense counsel did in their brief. They said when it's a deliberate tactic 
then that should not be, the plaintiff should not, should not guarantee from that and, or should not benefit from that. And they cite couch, but they leave out one word, one word that is significant in its trial. That's the holding of couch. Because what we have there procedurally is we have a deliberate strategy at trial. Factually, the couch case, there was examinations of six witnesses five days into trial. Talk about having your day in court. Five days into trial, examining six witnesses, then and only then did plaintiff's counsel and couch say, I'm going to dismiss one of the parties, and then said, oh, I goofed. That's not this case, Your Honor. And that's not, and do not allow the defense to suggest that otherwise. It's interesting that they bring up Carter for the first time in this court, as Judge Car Carpenter correctly put, you cannot find a single mention of Carter in their brief. Why? Because it's not a good case for them and it's not convenient for them. Carter is controlling. Judge Levinson acknowledged that Carter is controlling, yet decided for whatever reason not to follow it. I will address the other points there. It's interesting to me, if we're truly saying that the issue is Stu Ryan lied, and therefore we're going to punish the plaintiffs in this case, well, let's be careful what we're talking about here. First of all, we're talking about Stu Ryan, who defense counsel has made clear was not pro hoc vice in the improperly filed case. But what did Judge Levinson not consider and what we keep talking about? We're talking about the Pro Hoc Vice counsel, Stu Ryan. We looked at his affidavit, but we did not look at Chance Farr's proffered statement. No, it wasn't, it wasn't notarized. Uh, and I can give into the details, but it's not in the record, so it's not important. But I can tell you this. Why did Judge Levinson not consider Chance Farr's statement when he allowed himself to consider a statement by another member of the bar in another proceeding not filing an affidavit and yet put Liz Venom's statement on, yeah, that's good because it's consistent with Mr. Pierce's. But Chance Farr, the person who actually filed the dismissal, we don't care about his intent. We only care about the intent of the out-of-state lawyer in this case, Stuart Ryan. As you've correctly said, quite frankly, that's not what we should be looking at. Well, Let me hit the 16 and 17 in, in Judge Levinson's order just merely express that it's, it's, I read it as considering that for the credibility determination and how that weighs on Mr. Ryan's credibility, not necessarily for the truth of the matter asserted. Well, I, yeah, I agree with you on that. I, I agree with you 100%. If I said otherwise, I, I certainly didn't mean to say otherwise on that. Um, let me address, though, what I think is still here about equity. Judge Dillon, you made a proper mark here, and Judge Carpenter, these cases were going to be there regardless. There were two cases there in, in essence. Defendants want to claim prejudice, want to claim, oh, it's been taking so long, there have been all these mistakes. Your Honor, we concede their mistakes. But should those mistakes under 60B6 lose these two survivors' opportunity day in court? What I'll simply tell you is what I've heard at least today presented to this court under 60B6 is, well, plaintiffs can't argue that. Well, Your Honors, if you look at the motion, the motion is clear it's under Rule 60B, period. The arguments made at both the motion and beyond cover both 60B1 and 60B6 in the alternative. And more importantly, Your Honor, Judge Levinson did in fact consider, maybe he made a mistake to consider in the alternative, but he did, and it's properly before this court whether 60B6 is appropriate. And I would argue that he did in fact abuse his discretion under 60B6 for really two principal reasons. One, we have no consent of the plaintiff survivors in this case to dismiss their cases, okay? Understand the import of that. And they want to say, well, Shame on them for their plaintiff's attorneys, the former plaintiff's attorney's case. And as you know, I didn't represent the plaintiffs at that stage. I do now. But I'll tell you, they keep arguing unclean hands. And I'll go back to a statement I made in my reply brief. 
I don't think Judge Levinson intended to draw a comparison between the bad hands of DD's counsel or TH's counsel and the unclean hands of the therapist that violated her. But eventually, that's what we're evoking that image. We're saying on par that these two survivors should not have their day in court because of plaintiff's counsel. And, and more importantly, what they're saying is because of plaintiff's pro hoc vice counsel that they claim now is not part of the case. So the, the idea that I've got here, we have no consent of the plaintiffs, no agreement of the parties. And where's the misrepresentation when we talk about this, when Judge Levinson said Granger Pierce's affidavit's good? It's fine, and I don't disagree, because I wasn't a part of that phone conversation, no one was. But the court didn't inquire, well, Mr. Pierce, where are your contemporaneous notes? Mr. Pierce, where are the emails that you did to memorialize a conversation that happened 16 months past? Instead, we take Stu Ryan's thing, we toss it, and we put Granger Pierce above. That at least invokes arbitrariness, and that's going along the cut of abusive discretion under 60B1. I do think that you do properly have 60B6 in this situation, uh, and I would argue certainly in the alternative that we could do so. They keep arguing back and forth that you can't do that. The case law, Sides versus Reeds, that I cited in my brief, a 60B movement need not specify which subpart of Rule 60B relief is sought. This case has been argued both before the trial court, has been briefed before the trial court, has been briefed before this court as both a 60B1 and a 60 v 6, and it's properly before this court. So uh, to simply say, Your Honors, we believe that there is 60 v 1 relief and that the trial, trial court erred both as a matter of law and in terms of its conclusions. But in the alternatives, Your Honor, the trial judge erred under 60 v 6 relief. What we're asking, and as Judge Carpenter correctly said, the law favors those to have their cases heard, and that's what we're asking in this case, Your Honor. Let me just, uh, sorry, Chief Judge Dillon, let me just. You have the pending 12B6 motion out there in the other case. For rules for 60B6, we don't know how that's going to come out. We don't know if the trial court's going to allow that motion or not. We don't know if there's going to be other arguments on that or not, such as, you know, I, I'm just trying to think without putting words in anybody's mouth, you know. There are potential defenses to that 12B6 motion that I can brainstorm on, you know, given my, my few days in this case. So until that's done, how do we know the impact of this to judge the equities? And, and I think that's why I, I have these, these concerns with rightness, um, given these, these two competing cases. Yeah. I mean, we could end up in a situation where you lose the 12B6, you appeal the 12B6 in the other case, you win that, but you might also win that it shouldn't have been unjoined and these two plaintiffs should have been stuck together because that could come up on appeal and then that other case is completely irrelevant because you'd wind it all the way back. So like, there's all these floating pieces and I understand you've got to deal with the 60B6, but I, I guess I'm, I'm just still struggling, struggling to see how you can properly evaluate a 60B6 claim without knowing the, impact, the full impact not the speculative impact, but the full impact of the dismissal with prejudice. I, I think that's a fair point, Your Honor, and I would simply say to that, we're probably a few months ahead if, if, if what you're saying and your concerns are. Uh, had we not appealed, uh, first of all, we would lose our opportunity to appeal the 60B6. So let me say that. We had 30 days to notice that appeal. Um, they, of course, everything has stayed 
pending this appeal, of course. So we can't hear the, six, the 12B6 in that situation, but, Your Honors, I, I just, this op court has the opportunity to address how 60B6 applies and at least give instruction to the trial court, assuming a 12B6 motion comes. But I'm fully anticipating a 12B6 follows immediately after this, assuming the court rules that Judge Levinson was correct. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Thank you for your arguments. We'll take it under advisement.